morning we continue in 1 Kings, and we are in 1 Kings chapter 8 this morning. First Kings 8, we'll begin in verse 1, and we'll only be going through verse 30 today. God's Word says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel before King Solomon in Jerusalem, to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast, in the month of Athanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the Ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. (coughs) And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they they are there to this day. There is nothing in the ark except the two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel. Well, all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled this promise that he made, for I have risen in the place of David, my father, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord, God of Israel, keep your servant, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, you shall not lack 
a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to, the, and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Let's pray. O Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. And so we ask even now that you would work through the words of a man so that men would hear your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, the day has finally arrived. The months and years of preparation now come together. All the finishing touches are rapidly done. And last night's rehearsal made sure everyone knew their cues and parts. Now all that was needed was the beginning of the event. Guests begin to file in. And then the seating of the official party begins. Then with a note of transition, the musicians play a new song. The doors are shut and the triumphal music begins. It's time for the ceremony to officially begin. We've all been to weddings where you see all of this happen and there's all of this anticipation and then it all begins. We have a similar event here. There have been years of preparation and now there's the opening, the dedication of the temple. God promised years before this that he again would dwell with his people. David planned and prepared for his son to build this temple. Solomon secured and constructed the temple, and now all the years of promising, planning, and building come to fruition. With all of this going on, Solomon took care to make sure that the procedures, the process, even the day that this happened, would all honor God. The celebration begins, but the focus of this dedication is not look at what we've built or look at who we are, but the whole focus is on God, that God's condescension to them is what should be celebrated, not their achievement for God. And so this passage focuses our thoughts on God, and we see today three things. We'll look at the rest of it in a couple weeks, but here we see first in verses 1 through 11 that God's glory fills the house. Then in verses 12 through 21, Solomon reminds them that it's God's promises that allow us to be here, to have this house built, and ends, verses 22 through 30, that God's presence is now in the temple. And the event begins, verse 1, we see with all the various leaders of Israel coming and gathering together. Now, this is such an important event. It's not just Solomon and a select few, but everyone. And they bring up the Ark of the Covenant. They bring up all of the various things. And notice, verse 2, that they do this in the seventh month, the month of Ethanim. Now, this is interesting because if you flip back to the end of chapter 6, in verse 38, it says they finished the temple in the eighth month. And yet Solomon waited 11 months so that they could have this ceremony. 
I believe he waited practically because he wanted them to give extra time to get all of the little details worked out and have everything ready. But I think he also did this symbolically because this occurs during the feast, it says. It tells us that. That means the feast of booze. The seventh month of Israel was their month of celebration. If you read Leviticus 23, you'll see there are three great feasts that happened in this month. On the first of the month, they had the Feast of Trumpets, where they would blow trumpets, they would all stop work, and they would bring offerings to the Lord. And then on the tenth day of the seventh month, they would have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, where they would bring the once of the year sacrificial atonement into the holy place by the high priest. And they would remember, it is by the blood that we can come into his presence. And then on the 15th of the month, the third feast that they would have in the seventh month, they would have the Feast of Booze, or we might say the Feast of Tents. In this feast, they would all for a week, they would first build tents out of leaves, and then they would dwell in them. And why? Well, it reminded them that God brought us out of Egypt, and when he did, we lived in a tent, in a portable dwelling. And now they are building, they're dedicating this temple they've built during this time. And why? Because all of this is reminding them that they can have this temple because God made the way for this to happen. God sent the sacrificial lamb to remove their sins. God delivered them out of Egypt. God gave them rest so they no longer were living in portable tents. And so now God no longer lives in a tent, but he too will dwell in a permanent building, showing that they've reached the goal, the climax of a restored relationship with him and so with these pictures in mind they go and get the ark and you may notice they emphasize the priests carry up the ark well why well the one that's what's god instructed in numbers chapter four that the priests would go in and first they'd cover the ark with the curtain so they couldn't see it and then they'd slide poles through so they wouldn't touch it either and carry it and yet israel did not follow this just a generation before and when david brought up the ark Uzzah reached out and touched it and was killed. And so Solomon and company make sure they follow God's commands this time. And then they gather and they have these massive sacrifices, so many they can't count, and they bring the ark in under the cherubim. Remember we saw a couple weeks ago that these cherubim were all over the temple, in the decorations, in the walls, in the doors, and yet there were two massive ones, 15 feet tall with their wings going from one side of the holy of holies to the other side and these cherubim were first introduced in genesis 3 showing that adam and eve you may not come back into the garden you may not have dwelling with god because of sin and these cherubim are reminding israel that only by the blood of the lamb will their relationship with god be restored and then it says in verse 9 that the ark of the covenant now only contains the ten commandments Well, what happened to Aaron's staff and the manna? We're not told. But the emphasis is not so much where are those things, but the emphasis is nothing else is in the ark. Specifically, God is not in the ark. You know, God is the only being in this world that is completely free. No temple, no ark, no location control or limit God. Not only no location, but no person, no people has a corner on God as though God has to do their bidding. 
Israel clearly thought they had this because they, before this, needed to win a battle. And so what do they do? They say, let's take the ark. We got to win if we have the ark because God is on our side. And yet God's not there to do their bidding as though he's their servant. And so Israel lost the battle and the ark was taken. God is the only being in the universe who is completely and totally free to act within character. Here's Americans, we claim to be free, and yet we don't even control our own bodies. Cancer cells arise that we never wanted. Our hearts beat without our telling it to do so, and we die without our decision. We're not free morally, for like the Apostle Paul, we have to admit, I do things I don't want to do, and the things I wish I would do, I don't do. We're not free spiritually because we're dead in our sins. God alone lives in perfect freedom. And yet that is the same God who gave up his freedom so that we who had died might be set free ourselves. And so we should worship and adore the only being who is free. And yet tragically, we often think very little of God and we think more of what all these other people think and say about me. Their thoughts and actions sway us more than God does. Yet God is making clear he is free. And we can draw near to him. And he has made it so that we can know him. As we'll go and look at this passage, we'll see that God is not completely comprehended by us. And yet he has clearly revealed himself to us. And we see that here even by Solomon talking about God has given us the covenant. It's in the ark. They know God's will and what God wants them to do. Now, Christians often have a lot of soul-troubling, hand-wringing anxiety about some decisions. You know, should I go to this university? Should I take this job? Should I marry this person? And I believe the Bible shows us that we definitely should pray. We should seek godly counsel And yet we shouldn't think on such decisions God's will is some kind of mystery. If the job is moral and you want to do it and it's not going to keep you from the other things God's calling you to do, then take the job. If the person is godly, you want to marry them, there's no sin involved in marrying them, then marry them. God's not rooting for Steve as you are dating Sam and you have to somehow figure out God's mysterious will as he's sprinkled providential clues throughout the universe on billboards, cryptic coincidences, and emotions. God has made it very simple. Love justice. Sorry, do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with him. Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself, which is a summary of the Ten Commandments. God is not some deep mystery that we have to wonder What do I have to do to make him happy? He's made it clear. He's given them in the ark and given us his will for our lives. And then something amazing happens. They bring all this in, and then verse 10 says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. Now this cloud here is an ongoing pattern of God's presence with Israel. If you remember from the book of Exodus, This cloud first appeared in Exodus 13 where a cloud of fire led them to the Red Sea. 
guided them. And then that same cloud came in between Israel and Egypt as Egypt came out to conquer them in Exodus 14. And then it allowed Israel to go across the Red Sea, and then the cloud went over Egypt, and they were confused and died in the sea. Then in Exodus 16, when Israel grumbled, said, we don't have any food to eat, what happened? The glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud and told them that manna would feed them. And then in Exodus 24, when Moses went up on the mountain, a cloud appeared, and the glory of God filled the cloud. And then Exodus 30 and 34, 33 and 34, when Moses went up the mountain a second time, this cloud went up. God's presence, it has guarded them, it has protected them, it has provided, it has cared for Israel. And then at the end of Exodus, when they were dedicating the tabernacle, the precursor to the temple, the same thing happened, that the cloud came down and it filled the tabernacle so that Moses could not minister in it, we are told. You know, Moses, the man who had been able to be at the burning bush. Moses, the man who'd been able to be on the mountain. Moses, the man who'd been able to see the after effects of God's glory. When God came down in the cloud, even he could not enter. And so all of this would be reminding the Israelites here in 1 Kings 8 that God has come amongst us. He has really come and entered the temple. And so they would be standing or kneeling in joyful awe that God showed his presence with Israel before, and now he has come to dwell with them again. And all of this happens, we see in verses 12 through 21, because God keeps his promises. Notice verse 12, though, it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. As I read that this week, I kind of scratched my head. The first thing that popped in my mind was First John 1, 5. Well, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. Psalm 27 1 says the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear Psalm 36 9 for with you is the fountain of life in your light do we see light so why is it talking about God dwelling in darkness yet Solomon here is hitting another biblical theme in Deuteronomy chapter 4 when God gave the law on Sinai it says that darkness wraps the mountain when David tells of God coming down, he proclaims in 2 Samuel 22, He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. So the Bible talks in both ways. God comes in darkness. God is light. Really because there's a tension in the Bible that exists because of the three ways the Bible talks. First, the Bible talks about how things were when we were created and there was no sin. The Bible also talks about how things are now that sin has come. And it also talks about how things will be when sin is totally eradicated. And before sin entered the world, it was only light and life with Adam and Eve. When sin came, though, God removed his presence and it was like darkness in our relationship to him however once again once he redeems us we live in the light of his presence and we know from revelation there will be no darkness because there will be no sin and so there's this tension here that yes god's presence comes but again they're reminded sin has not fully removed every darkness that exists and yet this temple was giving them giving us a clearer picture 
of God's restored relationship. And yet even this is just a foreshadowing of the final goal, the goal that Jesus described to the Samaritan woman, John 4, when she's talking about, well, where should we worship? And Jesus says, well, you're not going to worship on this mountain. You're not even going to worship in Jerusalem because God desires those who are going to worship in spirit and truth. It's the picture given in Revelation 21 where it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God will be with them as their God. And then it says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so Solomon, though, lives in the middle of this tension because the God of darkness who can't dwell with man has a house built so that he can dwell with man forever. And then Solomon turns around, we see in verse 14, and he blesses the people. Now, it's interesting, it's not like the ironic blessing in Numbers, Numbers chapter 6, but it's a blessing by recounting what God has promised, a blessing of recounting what God has done. Because he says, look, God spoke to us. He said he would have a house built for his name. Deuteronomy 12 tells of this. It says, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that your Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies all around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. And so Solomon's remembering God's promise to them as they crossed over. He's remembering the promise to David that, yes, David, you want to build this, but not you. That's a good desire, but it shall be in your son. And yet of all of those promises, or even looking back to a prior promise, the promise in Genesis 3, right after the relationship with God is destroyed, God promises a descendant of Eve that will crush the serpent. In other words, that though their sin caused God to not dwell with them, God promised a way, or more specifically, a child who would bring restoration through judgment. And so the picture the temple is giving us is that God is restoring him dwelling with us. And so here Solomon recalls all of God's promises. That all that Yahweh has said will happen is now being fulfilled through Solomon. And now the ark, the covenant, it is all brought back together. And thus Solomon notices that God has kept all these promises. The promise to Adam and Eve to restore his presence. His promise to Israel to choose a place where his name will be and to David to do this through his son. And being able to count on someone's word, being able to trust them, is really the core of any relationship. I don't know about your conversations with people, but sometimes I'll be engaging with someone, maybe on a political issue, and I'll share a fact or something, and then they go, well, you can't trust that place. You can't trust that source. And what it's saying is, look, we have to have people, we have to have websites that we can trust. And if you don't trust them, then you can't count on them to tell you the truth. And trust is a foundational issue for any and all relationships. With trust, you can laugh. You can work through differences, and you can act with confidence. Without trust, every single word you say is parsed. 
differences become insurmountable. And hesitatingly you act because you don't know what are they going to do. Now consider trust in a relationship we all have, relationship with a doctor. You go in and you assume, well, based on their degree, based on the reviews I read online, based on the fact they have an office, I should trust them. And you let them run tests on you. And sometimes they say, you're so bad, I need to give you medicine that will make you fall asleep and touch your body. And you go, okay. That's kind of a weird thing if you think about it. I'm going to let you put me in a state where I don't control my body at all, and then you're going to cut me? And yet we trust them because of who they are, because of what they've done. In the same way, think of a child. They look down that infinitely long, dark hallway, and they don't want to go until they grasp their parent's hand. And then they can march boldly to their bedroom or bathroom, wherever they need to go. Why? Because they trust the one whose hand they grasp. They have the years of faithfulness from a parent to know they're going to take care of me. Well, like a doctor, like a parent, God has shown us over and over, not just for a couple days or months, not even decades or centuries, for millennia, God has kept his word over and over and over, showing you can trust me. I keep my promises. This is really the foundation of our trust in the Bible. It's not that these men had really great insights into God's character, but that God wants to reveal himself to us. And we trust that he's revealed who he wants us to know him as. And that if he's wanted to reveal himself to us, and if he's wanted to send his son to die for us, he's not then going to go, well, I don't really care if they keep this thing in in shape. No, he's guarded his word because he wants us to know we can know him and trust him. Yet one of the greatest promises that we now read of is in verses 22 through 30 that God's presence is in the temple. Solomon now turns. He turns from blessing the people to looking up and praying to God. And he begins in verse 23 by saying, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above, on the earth beneath. Now that is one of the most important things we need to understand about God, and that is he is not like us. Psalm 50, the Israelites are thinking, well, we can live in sin, and it won't matter because we'll keep taking our sacrifices to the temple, and God's going to forgive us. And God rebukes them in many ways, but one thing he says is in verse 21, he says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. God is not like us. As I began seminary, one of the first courses was theology, systematic theology. And the first thing we learned, an appropriate first thing to learn is that God is incomprehensible. Now, you may think that's a pretty bad way to start a school. The first thing they tell you is, you're not going to comprehend this. And yet, when we're studying God, that's where we need to begin. Now, you need to realize the point is not that they're saying you can't understand God at all. It's that you can never know God exhaustively or fully. A finite mind cannot grasp an infinite being. That's why Isaiah records God saying, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like you? You know, there's nothing in all of creation that we can go, well, God is like that, period. 
Well, yes, he's like that. He's like a lion, but he's also like a lamb. And he's also like everything. We need all of creation so that by analogy we can know God. Now, to be clear again, we're not saying, well, we, we can't know God. We just talk gibberish because God has made himself known to us. He said, I am the creator, and we can understand that. He said, I sent my son Jesus to die for you, and we can understand that. He has said, I love you, and we can understand that. The point is, we can't ever go, well, you know, I finished with all that theology stuff. Maybe I'll go on to physics or um, biology, stuff that is harder. No, you'll never get to the point where you got, I understand God. And this really shouldn't be too surprising to us. How many of us have lived our lives and then we do something and go, I really don't understand myself at times. Or maybe you've lived with a sibling or a parent or a spouse and you know them, but then you go, sometimes I feel like I don't even know who you are yet. How much more is the God of the universe like that? The church father, John Chrysostom, said, a comprehended God is no God at all. In fact, if we could fully understand God, there would be no point in knowing him. Think about someone who loves something, and they go on and on, and then at the end they almost say, I'm barely scratching the surface. You know, as they study this amazing aspect of God's creation, they go, there's so much more and I want to learn it. What about the one who made that thing? Again, to be clear, we're not saying that God cannot be apprehended. We have knowledge of God. It's a creaturely knowledge, though, not divine knowledge. We truly know him in creation, but we do not know God as he knows himself. And yet this compels us to seek to know him more, to worship him, because he is a being far beyond our feeble thoughts. And Solomon specifically says God is unlike anyone else in verse 24 because he keeps his covenant. He keeps his loyalty his covenant loyalty with his servants. Read of other gods. They're always manipulating, lying, twisting, trying to use humans to only serve them. They try to keep from the humans the powers that they have. And yet God is the God who serves. That's the covenant God who loves. And then something interesting happens. Solomon has recounted how God has kept his promises. He just says again, you're the God who is always faithful. And then in verses 25 and 26, he prays, Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David my father what you've promised him, saying, Wait, why would he ask for God to keep his promises if God is always going to keep his promises? Well, because the Bible never presents life or God as a fatalistic universe. Well, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. It's in fact that God keeps his promises that urges us, that beckons us, to pray. God has done this before. Let's pray and ask that he would do it again. Let's continue to call on God to act. And then Solomon poses a question. Verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? And perhaps you're finally saying, well, I've been kind of wondering that too. What's this with God dwelling in a temple? Isn't it rather ridiculous to think of the God of the universe now living at 341 David Lane, Jerusalem, Israel, 97500. That's where he gets his mail, and maybe you can get his WhatsApp signature so you can send him a text. Well, no, that's not what it's saying. 
But perhaps you, like many people, say, well, how can we listen to these ancient nomadic sheep herders who think God will live in a temple? These idiots. Well, one, it really doesn't matter what their trade is or whether they're modern or ancient. The question is, is what they're conveying is true. Is it true? And Solomon clearly shows us that he does not think that God lives in the temple. Here again, we have to come to grips that God is beyond our comprehension. And thus we use language for humans to try and describe God. And this is called anthropomorphism. You know, God is a spirit, and yet the Bible talks about God's hands and his eyes and his ears. Well, God doesn't actually have those, but for us to understand that he does see here that he has those things. Yet this is not Solomon cleaning up the rudimentary theology of Moses. Deuteronomy 26.15, after the tabernacle was made, Moses prayed, look down from heaven, your holy habitation. Moses understood this as well. And the Bible consistently teaches us, Acts 17.24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You know, the question is, am I going to understand God as I conceive him to be? or as he reveals himself to be. And the question here is, how does the God of the universe relate to physical objects, to his creation? And there's really two extremes, and one, and it's growing in popularity in the U.S., is pantheism. That God is everything, and in everything, and part of everything. Yet God is spirit. And while he is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere, we should not confuse that as though God is part of everything. You know, often either maybe to bad explanation or bad understanding, as children learn God's omnipresence, at first they're in awe, and then they get into amusement. Wait, wait, wait. God's everywhere? So like God's with me in the bathroom? <laughs> so like when I sit down, I'm sitting on God? No, you're not sitting on God because God is not in part of or anything to do with the chair. God is here, but he is not spatially here. You never sit on God. You're not moving God forward or back as you walk because God's omnipresence is not a spatial recognition. Genesis 14.9, God is praised as possessor of heaven and earth. In other words, he is not part in any way of the universe, for he owns it, created it, and rules over it. And yet the other extreme, which oddly is also growing in popularity in the U.S., is deism, that God made everything, but he's only omnipresent in his power. He's not really here in his being or his essence or his nature. And yet earlier we had Psalm 139 read, and what did it say? Where can I flee from God's presence? Everywhere I go, not just God's power ruling the universe, but God's being is everywhere. Jeremiah 23, God states, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? And the answer is clearly no. There's nowhere you can go from God's presence. And so Solomon is avoiding these two extremes by explicitly saying God is not bound by the temple. The temple cannot contain or box in God, so to speak. And Solomon really has been showing this throughout. He's been showing this by did you notice what they call this? Let us build a house for the name of the Lord our God. 
there showing that it's not just God who's going to be there. It's his name. Or notice where Solomon wants him to hear from. Look down in your Bible. Psalm, not Psalm, 1 Kings 8, verse 30. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven. Or look at verse 32. Then hear in heaven. Or verse 34. Then hear in heaven. Or verse 36. Then hear in heaven. Or verse 39. Then hear in heaven. Or verse 43. Where he says, hear in heaven. And then lastly in verse 45. Then hear in heaven. This is a lot of interesting talk if Solomon actually thinks like God's, like the genie, God's stuck in this little bottle and we have him contained. So let's to tie this all together. God is the creator and distinct from and transcends over his creation. Yet God's presence exists eminently in every, as, every part of his creation, but not in the sense that God is part of the creation. And though God is everywhere, he has allowed his presence to be more fully known in certain places, like the temple, or at certain times. And thus God allows here a greater revelation of his presence at the temple, but he didn't first have to turn in a change of address forms or pack his bags. God is everywhere. Yet as we conclude, I think we need to consider this astounding fact that God even wants to be with them. We kind of like, oh yeah, God's with us. No big deal. But think about all the people you actually don't want to be with you. Perhaps it's an annoying sibling, overbearing parent, a rude relative, an obnoxious coworker, and as soon as you see them, you lock your door, walk away, act like you didn't see their text because you really don't want anything to do with them. You purposely avoid them and wish they'd go away. We think they're inferior, worthless, annoying. But whatever the case, we don't want them around. And yet, God desires to have a restored relationship with rebellious sinners. And he is saying here, look, I have come to dwell with you. And he's over and over showing you can dwell with me through the blood of the Lamb. And has God's glory left the earth yet? Well, Paul doesn't think so, because he will speak of the temple in this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, Do you not know that you, plural, talking to the church, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God is holy, and you, referring to the church in this context, are that temple. And Paul's showing that since God dwells in us through the Spirit by faith in the Son, we, the church, are now God's dwelling place. Are you aware of how important the local church is to God? When you look around the local church, our church, what do you think? These are adjectives people put in front of a church, good or bad. A thriving church, a small church, a welcoming church, a spirit-filled church, a large church, a dying church, a Baptist church. We could go on and on. And yet God looks at the church and says, the glorious church, 
You may look around and go, well, don't really see much glorious here. And yet, God dwells in us by faith. You know, as we reflect God in selfless love, radical generosity, deep compassion, and gospel truth, the more we live that way, the more the glory of God should be seen in the church. In some ways, the church is like silver. It's beautiful and valuable in itself, but what happens? Tarnish comes, and it hides the beauty. It masks it, and so you have to get out the polish and remove the tarnish so that the beauty that is always there is revealed. In the same way, we need to take the polish of God's word, and we need to humble ourselves, as we read earlier in Isaiah 66, so that the glory of God might be seen not just in the church kind of ethereally, but in the church locally. That his presence might be made known so that God may be seen amongst us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you would want to dwell with rebellious sinners like us. Lord, may we be that glorious picture of you to each other, to the world around us, that people would stand in awe, not in any way of us, but of the one who is shining through us. Lord, even now, guide us, direct us, that we might be a better reflection of you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.